Welcome to episode two of Cloud Masters, a no-fluff cloud podcast brought to you by Do It International. Sam, you're a TAM, technical account manager at Do It. We're joined here by two other TAMs, Andrew, who I believe you're based in California, Ian, somewhere in the United Kingdom. Yeah, that's right. Sunny Cambridge. I'm in the Seattle area, Matan. Oh, my bad. I just assume Close everyone I just assume everyone in the West Coast is just in California because that's where I'm from. Yeah. Fair assumption. It's just a California bias. Um, I use the word TAM, uh, technical account manager. I see you guys as kind of this hybrid of busy business savvy with technical expertise and a, and a sprinkle of FinOps. Is that fairly accurate? What you guys help customers with? Sounds like a pretty good call, but since, since Ian's my manager, let's hand it over to him to give the spiel on, on what a TAM is. Yeah. And I'll preface this by saying that we're going to go over cloud bill red flags. So a technical account manager for me, and I've been doing the role uh, at different businesses for for a while now. So I always see my role as a uh, as a, I, I call myself a consulting advisor, and my team of advisors. Um, and so whilst we're not there actually helping people transform code, what we're doing is ultimately reducing, trying to reduce the friction of using technology in the cloud. So there's a uh, if 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 you look at the vendors' straight outputs, it looks like. You just do three clicks and you've got an entire business running. And sure, if it's if you're happy running on defaults, that's the case. The truth is, is to get to the point where you've got actual deliverable content that you really want, it's much, much harder than it, it appears. And so helping customers understand that it's okay, that it is difficult, um, and that there are ways of overcoming some of these challenges, that's what, that's what we do as technical account managers. So we focus on reducing the friction of using that new technology, and quite often, that actually just boils down to, hey, why is my stuff costing so much? So uh, in EMEA, uh, all the TAMs are FinOps certified, so we can have those conversations in a fairly meaningful manner. Not not everyone gets a TAM. It's pretty uh, it's a it's it's a pretty uh, exclusive group of customers that get that get technical account managers. I was just looking at the list from your uh, from our internal confluence, so I was actually surprised to see how small it is. So anyone who's listening that has a TAM, consider yourself lucky. Um, now, we're here to talk about cloud bill red flags and what do I mean by that? These are basically just instances in your cloud bill that may be reflective, non-obvious instances um, that um, in your cloud bill that may be reflective of an anti-pattern. And so what I want to do today on today's episode is take the collective wisdom of you three, you're all, you're all Tams, um, from helping customers navigate their cloud bill. And I want to distill that into some of the maybe the strangest or the hardest to pick out red flags, the ones that are especially non-obvious. And then I want to share that with the broader community. Um, I want to, I want to kick this off with one that you brought up with me a while ago that kind of caught me off, that kind of surprised me. And I guess you've seen in the past, uh, CloudTrail being one of the top services in your bill that actually happens. Yeah, that's, that's one of my favorites from, from a long time ago. Um, basically, you know, I mean, Everyone in cloud likes to talk about event-driven architectures and, and this kind of thing, and that's wonderful. Um, and I, and I, I really think it is a good way to work. Unfortunately, I had a particular customer that um, configured uh, their environment so that every workload had its own CloudTrail deployed. And uh, so for anyone that's experienced with AWS CloudTrail, it's an audit trail of all the events going on at an API level within your AWS account. Um, it's got nothing to do with the internals of your, for example, EC2 instances or anything like that. It's, it's really, 
you know, when did someone turn this on or turn it off or scale, uh, auto scale event happened or something like that. Um, and they were subscribing to that to generate events to then power the next part of the automation, whatever is going on. Um, the AWS pricing model is that your first cloud trail in an account in a region is for free. So um, it should generally be free and everyone can subscribe to the events from that. But this particular customer was deploying events after events, or sorry, trails after trails after trails, and therefore paying a lot of money for cloud trail. So for me, the red flag here is anytime you are paying for cloud trail at all, let alone when it's one of your top services, it should always be free for all customers. Um, and one of the most common times that I used to see that not being free is when Amazon came out with a new feature. They came out with the organization's cloud trail. You set it and forget it from your organization's management account, um, previously known as payer account. You set it and forget it there, and it deploys it across all accounts in your organization in all regions, and everything's wonderful. But it doesn't delete the existing ones. So now you've got at least two, and you're paying for them. So it's a good one for people to go through, and it, it's usually an easy saving, a couple thousand bucks a month. Um, you can knock it off your account. Ian, you brought up something yesterday um, around storage costs. I think not just like a one-time thing, but seeing your storage costs steadily increase. So of course your cost, your storage is always going to cost. Now it's it's relatively cheap these days to be storing data, and so it's uh, it's easy to overlook. But there's it's a deeper thing than the actual just transit cost that you've got from the data. So uh, like it, it's here in Europe, it's uh, GDPR and uh, data privacy uh, challenges. So you don't want to be retaining data for too long. So a common problem uh, is that you may be taking snapshots from uh, or or backups, uh, and of course, when they're set up, they're a great idea and everybody checks that and you know, does the sensible thing to make sure that they're actually good data and can be used, etc. What tends not to happen is the uh, that they don't check in later on to see whether the pro appropriate life cycles are applied. So what you get is a buildup of uh, storage over time. So you end up with an excess of snapshots. You'll end up with a potential, uh, potentially a, a log store growing. And so what you do is you can use whichever uh, your favorite uh, analytic tool of choice do a report over your storage and have a look to see uh, is there is 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 there a line that's just going up and if there is then that's your telltale so you're looking so, so do a quick check and say okay is there is, is the storage only going up because if it is it might be that it just hasn't reached its uh, its life cycle timeout yet so it might be that it's there for six years for example in some cases in legal cases uh, but it's more usual that's going to be a 30 day or a 90 day life cycle so if you're seeing that just going straight up then check on it, make sure the appropriate life cycles are applied. I've saved customers thousands a month just by having just by checking out on this. So you've got things like multi-part uploads, which can be taken care of on AWS with uh, lifecycle policies as well. So by checking on those lifecycle policies, super low-hanging fruit, but super effective. And so you can tell whether you've got a problem just by having a quick look at the graphs and seeing if, if, the, if the graph is only going up, then even if it's a small amount of data, then it could be that that data shouldn't be around and is actually a violation of your data privacy uh, settings of your company. So it's always worth, it's an easy thing to check and it can get ahead of problems uh, in the future. Another thing that was brought up a while back from you, Sam, was get metric data from CloudWatch. Mm. This is a skew that basically tells you something with Datadog that's or is it is it any service or is it strictly related to Datadog here? Yeah, let's let's not blame let's not blame one company here. Um, okay. It's definitely not just just related to Datadog, but um, yeah. So uh, this one is is one of those ones. It it can be considered a cost of business, it's, and it's 
it's really, I guess, uh, a good time to mention that uh, the same thing that we said yesterday uh, in the last episode is that you you cannot optimize things without knowing what they are, right? Um, but the Getmetrics data is one where uh, companies that provide you with information about your AWS uh, environments uh, or or any, I guess, um, and you know, I'm, I'm looking at things like Cloud Health, New Relic, uh, Datadog, all of these products work in similar ways where they have a role. Uh, it's, it's a limited role that they can read some of your metrics out of AWS, typically CloudWatch, to find out, for example, if you're using your instances properly, how many requests you had on your database or uh, useful information. It's really good. To try to get more real time, they scan your account really regularly. And that can be up to them every minute or, or maybe more. Uh, I'm not sure where they're at these days. But um, what ends up happening is that you pay for not only their software, but you also pay for the API requests they're making in your account. Um, and yes, it's very important to know when your system's going down. It is a good cost of business, and it's, I think it's reasonable. But there are some situations where, for example, in a dev account that's got lots of resources, you end up paying a huge amount for CloudWatch because of this API call coming from the monitoring software. Um, there are a few solutions. Uh, we've got a, an upcoming episode where we're going to talk to one of my customers about how they got rid of that cost uh, with a whole new architecture. But even um, if you don't want to change things greatly, a simple call through to those companies and asking them to turn down the volume on that account. You know, So instead of sampling the data every minute, to maybe sample it every quarter of an hour on the dev accounts. Um, and generally, they can tweak the configuration for you. It's not something that's uh, it, it never used to be. Uh, exposed through the uh, APIs or through their consoles, but you can turn that data volume down and, and then you know save a bit of money on, on on the metadata about everything. I guess simple, not even a technical solution. Just ask them to 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 fetch the data less frequently. There's a technical solution on their end. They they yeah. need to make some changes. Need to change a number from one to fifteen. Yeah, I like what Sam said about you can't really optimize unless you know what it is because I think it's a, that's immediately a red flag, right? If you see something in the bill that you just don't know what it is. It's a new service, let's say, or some sort of spike or any sort of change. Then that's definitely something to investigate. I would say. Yeah. Who started using BigQuery all of a sudden? What are we? <laughs> yeah. Not to pump our own tires, but we did just release a Zapier integration, and one of the triggers is um, basically get alerts you when when someone in your company when a new service is being used in your cloud environment. So. Um, that's probably helpful for anyone who's a customer that's listening. Yeah, the trouble the trouble is like it's it's a cool idea. Um, I think it'll be great for us, but it it needs to do like a maybe a thirty day check in or something as well. Like you know, you've started using this. Did you realize that you're spending way too much on it, <laughs> or or what's your experience running it in production now? How, how's it going? One of my one of my favorite examples is where um, a new dev team uh, were excited by new technology, so. They adopted a bunch of new services, which of course is a great thing to do, and that's how, that's how we innovate and get new ideas. Uh, but they turned on, they, they had the question, how, how much logging do we need to do? So they were like, well, we don't know, so we'll just log it all. And so they just turned everything up kind of close to max. Uh, and then they it, it made its way into production at that level. Um, and they had a shocking amount of excess data. And my first question to them when I was looking at the bill was, hey, this is uh, this is quite a lot of detailed data. What are you? How are you actioning that? It turns out they were projecting it onto a dashboard. They didn't have any automation off of it. So I was like, well, 
maybe many times a second for that particular uh, workload isn't really necessary. Maybe we could turn that down a bit. They turned it down to once every five minutes and didn't even notice because the granularity of the dashboard didn't even show up. So they were just burning excess cash there essentially. And so we they turned it down to save a bag of money. So it's a really it's an easy thing to happen. Um, and I see I've seen it happen at, for very mature teams as well, just because. That's not your primary focus, right? You've got to work it. You've done all your testing. You've done your UAT. It's ready to go. Maybe just a last spot check to make sure that you've got the appropriate level of uh, of, of monitoring and uh, and logs. Logging logging is a really interesting one though because um, I've seen production times when it should be the most expensive. Um, well, should maybe is the wrong word to use here, but a really common um, serverless architecture. So I was working with a customer um, who had a serverless connected vehicle platform. And they were taking a lot of IoT style events, processing them through things like Lambda uh, on AWS and obviously doing work with the data. And every time those Lambdas fired, they would emit a, um, a short status message to say starting the fu function and then at the end stopping the function. You can't turn that off. That alone was accounting for something like 30% of their logging traffic. So even once they did all the right things and turned the, turned the uh, velocity down on the logs and so on, it was still a huge amount of data. Um, and the only way we actually found to stop that was to remove the IAM role on the Lambda function so it couldn't write. And AWS doesn't charge you for it if it doesn't, even if you attempt to write it, but it doesn't hit the CloudWatch, um, you don't get charged for it. So a uh, little tip, if you if you really want to save money on logging, you can take away permissions for it. I've definitely seen the same thing before, Sam, specifically in relation to Lambda where, where that logging just completely spikes up. Um, yeah, long, long is definitely an interesting one. I completely agree with everything that's been said. I think um, I had a customer ask me kind of what ratio is kind of a good ratio of how much you should spend on logging compared to their overall infra. And I don't know if there's like a specific ratio because it kind of depends on what your needs are. But if you're spending more than 20% or more on logging, that's probably a sign that you need to, you probably want to take a look at what you actually are logging, whether you need it. Um, if you're at like the 5%, 10% level, that sounds like it's pretty good to me from most people from what I've seen, but, um, I've seen examples where logging was more expensive or almost more expensive than their, their compute itself. And that's definitely probably not optimal. So that's a really good shout I, I got, and that's a, that's a pretty common question. I mean, I like 10% logging is probably okay. I had a customer that was doing just over 26%, uh, logging and I was, I called it out. I was like, this is quite heavy. And there was a, it was a banking customer, you know, financial industry. So uh, they, they had lots of reasons. Um, ultimately the reasons were just poor discipline ultimately from, yeah you know, from an issue. So they just logged everything just in case, cause they were afraid of the, the, you know, the, the financial auditing and inspection. So, uh, and I ended up having uh, discussions with the security team. Cause of course everybody was like, oh, we need it for security. So I spoke to the security team and they're like, no, we don't need this level. Uh, and then it was like, I was passed around the various teams, each thinking the other people needed it. Um, we ended up saving them, we, we saved them 30K a month. Um, unfortunately for the amount they were spending, that was, it, it, it was a rounding error practically. So they were still overspending on the logging, uh, by a fair old chunk, but it's knowing what good looks like and having an idea of it is, uh, again, I think it's a blind spot, right? It's, uh, cause it's, if you don't know, you don't know. So maybe a quarter of your bill on logging is, is entirely valid, but in that case, it definitely was not. It does sound excessive, but I wonder, um, can we break that down further? I mean. Uh, should we have more or less logging in a dev or test environment than we do in a production environment? See, that's exactly how we save that 30k a month, right? 
So they put in some dev switches, which turned off the excess logging in the lower level environments. And so, because they realized that you don't, it, it's in dev, you need some logging. You just don't need the kind of, you don't need the same sort of logging you need in production. It's different kind of metrics, different kind of signals. So yeah, there's a, and that's the same for all monitoring. Honestly, it's, if it's in lower level environments, you should be using more spot. You should be using less monitoring and you should be looking for the, for the signals that are on the thing you've just tested should be really high debug level. But for the rest of it, it should just be turned right down because that's if it breaks, you just turn it off and on again. It's not going to have high impact in production. That's money making. And so a good rule of thumb I used to use was that if your production if production plus pre-prod pre is costing more than everything else, wonder why. Because sure, you're doing development and R&D and innovation, sure. But if you've got, I had some cases where it was like seven to 10 times more expensive for the non-production uh, workloads. Like I pointed out to the customer, those workloads are not directly making you any money. So have, consider, is this really necessary? Do you need to have three replicas of an RDS database across multiple zones for a developer? Uh, or can you turn that down when you're deploying it in the Terraform and maybe maybe just save a little cash there? Because if you do that and you're at enough scale, then you can save a lot of money really quick with no impact is the point. So I think, I think these things are easily overlooked um, and because ultimately... As a customer, you're just trying to shift features out to get them in front of paying customers as quickly as possible. So some of these smaller points are easily overlooked. So I don't think it's a, it's not a, 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 a I advise people not to beat themselves up because they've missed it. It's a pretty, pretty common mistake. And just knowing where to look is the, is the key aspect, I feel. And I think also asking the, the right questions, like you, you mentioned two situations, one of which teams weren't communicating with one another. And another situation where a team wasn't asking, do we need to be receiving metrics here every, what was it, every second? Yeah, exactly. And so it's, uh, it, but then communication is clearly difficult because I've never gone to a customer and found that they've solved this as a problem. So again, we just have to accept that this is the real world. We're going to be, there's going to be bad communication. You know, it's, it's okay to be making these errors. It's just that having systems in place and mechanisms to be able to identify and spot them so we can then make sure that they don't get repeated and end up becoming very costly. It's okay to make mistakes. Just don't, let's not make them too expensive. That's the, that's the phrasing I use. But I mean, I think, you know, what you've said there about it, it's sometimes hard to spot this stuff or, or hard to know what the question is. Um, I think that's where the, the benefit of having an external party helps a little bit, right? Now, it doesn't necessarily need to be you or I, um, but you know, as a TAM, we've obviously got a lot of experience working with a lot of customers. We um, and we see some of these things as uh, almost anomalous type things. And if if a customer has a very high percentage of CloudTrail or CloudWatch or a number of other services that I that I regularly see, if that's a bigger percentage on their bill, then we're going to worry about it. Um, how can I? I mean, what what are your thoughts on how someone who uh, maybe doesn't have access to a TAM or doesn't have access to a partner to help them with this, how can they find out what are the right questions to ask? The advice I've always given others is to uh, be curious, right? So, because the, uh, the first problem is if the, if the glass is already full, you can't add anything to it. So accept that you don't necessarily know the right answers. And so be curious, go and look for it. But um, but yeah, that, that, that was, I, I don't have a direct answer other than uh, maybe get a partner to help you. Yeah, I think I think um, on a high level, the few places I kind of think of red flags and billing in two categories. One being kind of those gradual increases, a gradual kind of unexpected, um, you know, growth where things might get a little bit out of control. And 
you know, if you're seeing any of these trends where something is increasing much more than you're expecting, that's probably one indicator to to see on a high level. Maybe you should be considering looking at this a little bit more. And also, not necessarily just gradual, also just is your bill reflective of what the advantages of the cloud brings you. As an example, if you have a lot of EC2 or compute engine instances and it's just totally flat, 24-7, the, the, the graph every day is exactly the same amount. You're, you have your instances on all the time. That it might be worth considering why that is because the advantage of the cloud is that it is, you know, very flexible. You can, you know, scale up and scale down very quickly. And so even though that doesn't seem like actually an issue um, on, on the, like, like just when you immediately look at the bill, like there's definitely room to, op- room to optimize if you're noticing that it's just completely flat. And the other category of like red flies that I see are those sudden unexpected increases where, you know, you haven't used a service before and suddenly you see it grow very quickly. You see a very sudden spike or um, the common ones I see are related to um, things that are infinitely scalable and serverless typically. If there's no guardrails with those, then um, I've had a couple of examples where, where customers have had sudden spikes in BigQuery, for example, because um, one example that comes to mind because it was the most impactful one was they uh, an engineer built something new and it had an endless loop. So BigQuery um, and PubSub and Cloud Functions were speaking to each other. I don't remember, this was a while ago, so I don't remember exactly the uh, exactly what the architecture was, but it was continuously speaking to each other and going in an endless loop. And that ended up costing them, I think around $300,000 in the course of like, a couple of hours, I think less than a whole day. So um, this was from one engineer um, who drove up that cost and uh, it's because they didn't have any uh, appropriate guardrails at the time. They didn't have quotas. They they were using something um, that they didn't quite, like they didn't quite expect that to happen. So um, things like that, right? I think those are the kind of the other red flags. So whenever you're using something that's infinitely scalable, it's probably good to really read up on the pricing, make sure you understand exactly what's like what it's, pricing you on and finding ways to mitigate that. Or in the case of like BigQuery, they have other pricing models as well. So maybe the on-demand pricing model isn't the best one for you. But um, but yeah, those are generally the two categories that I see in terms of things that are alarming to me in, the, in terms of cloud billing. Guessing that 300K wasn't a rounding error. No, it, it, it was. It might have been more. I don't remember exact exact amount. So um, we had an okay solution as a result, but I don't want to turn this into like a, you know, mine's bigger than yours kind of competition, but um, I, did, <laughs> yeah. I did have a customer at AWS who did that with um, a, a small a small Lambda function that took a backup file and encrypted it when it was placed into an S3 bucket. Unfortunately, it placed the file back next to the original version and the, and the trigger wasn't very specific. So uh, the, the Lambda kept encrypting the file, dumping it there and recalling itself. Um, 28 days, $700,000. Um, uh, Can you beat that, Ian? I I don't think so, no. I'm just thinking that uh, the thing is, I've, we've, I mean, we've all got engineering in our past, right? So, uh, and uh, we're, I think we've all got tales of the time that you press the enter key and then realize that you logged into the wrong server and you just executed the function on the wrong thing. Or And so I'm just thinking of those engineers that were responsible for pressing those buttons and, 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 uh, and activating those services. I'm like, you think you're having a rough day until you learn that, uh, yeah, these things happen. And so people have really bad days, but so, uh, yeah, no, it, I, I will say that actually that one of the, a, a red flag that, um, is less technology focused and it reminds me. So I was at a, uh, at the, uh, one of the uh, post summer events, 
I was speaking to one of my customers, a, a principal engineer at the organization, been there for a very long time. And he was telling me how he gets technology right quite a lot. So, you know, as a, since he, he's the CCOE, he's the center of excellence that talks about new technologies. And um, we were having a little chat and a back and forth. And I realized I actually ended up uh, making him question his entire reality, which wasn't my intention, but we ended up heading that direction because I asked him, how does he know he's right? Uh, and of course, he was like super confident that it, it was absolutely the right thing to do to choose a particular technology or, or process. And so I asked him a few questions back, back and forth. And he ended up sort of doing that, staring into the mid, middle distance, kind of bemusing and, and stroking his chin a bit, because I think he realized that you can't be objectively right. There is no objectively right. And so he's making uh, technology decisions for his company. Uh, how is he checking that they're the right decisions? They might turn out to be good or bad in the long run, but right is probably the wrong term. And so when you've got engineers that have got some experience, certainly in, the, in a particular field, um, making sure that people are checking with other people. So asking other teams and asking for advice, making sure that your, your knowledge is kind of grounded are super important. Otherwise you end up, uh, in an echo chamber where you're making technology decisions. Uh, yeah, famously, uh, we've always done it this way. That's a, that's a big red flag in itself. Right. And so catching those design decisions and those design choices for service adoption, et cetera, that for me is a, is a it's a common problem that I see. So because everybody feels that they know how this stuff works, they end up not adopting things using the newer technology, maybe more upstack, more as a service kind of functions. And then they box themselves into a corner that ultimately in many cases, the customer is never freed from that kind of that, that, that vice grip until that engineer leaves. And they realize, Hey, there's actually loads of what we've been burning extra cycles all of this time. We've been spending time keeping the lights on when we could have been actually focusing on features. So mere red flag is to make sure that doesn't matter what your experience is or what your knowledge is, try to check yourself and say, hey, you know what, is this actually a, a good idea? And the only way of really doing that is to ask other people and take uh, take advice. I do that every time I go out and I send a picture to my mom and she lets me know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that, just is me, that in itself, is that an echo chamber if it's just your mom who, you know, by law has to love you? <laughs> 100% of the time, I look beautiful. So, <laughs> so I think, I mean, you know, coming back to if it's, if it's the right person to ask, and I think asking yourself is probably not. Um, but I have to give a shout out here to the AWS solution architects and the, and the Google Cloud customer engineers. Um, generally, a bunch of people that have a huge amount of experience with different customer environments and can give you some really good advice um, on at least different ways of thinking about things. They might not necessarily agree with the technology choice and you might not agree with theirs. That's okay. But at least, you know, if, if you come back to Andrew's example before of running uh, the same number of instances 24-7 for the whole month, you probably need someone to have a look at that. And there's a lot less obvious versions of that discussion with architecture that, you know, getting extra pair of eyes in, especially when that doesn't cost anything from your cloud provider, is, is maybe a good idea. Are you talking about us? That can also help, yes. But I, I was specifically <laughs> calling out AWS SAs and, and GCP CEs. But. Yeah, I, I will say just a short plug in terms of the BigQuery issue I mentioned. Um, we it was only three hundred thousand because of the fact that it was um, found through anomaly detection. It would it could have been a lot higher than that. They stopped it immediately when they saw it. So just a little plug. Having a do its anomaly detection definitely really helped there. We only allow small plugs on this on this podcast. This is uh, not 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 promotional. Do it. Although, if you want to work with us, 
you can go to our website and contact us. <laughs> um, now, you know, you talked about a case where, you know, infinitely scalable serverless services with no guardrails, that's essentially like a red flag. Um, on the topic of guardrails, Sam, we talked about how even some folks aren't doing some simple things with organizational policies as far as like limiting, what was it? Limiting regions that you, and limiting instance types and stuff like that. Can you, could you speak more on that? Absolutely. Um, a couple of times I've, I've been working with customers who had the unfortunate, uh, situation of being hacked. Um, I don't like using the word hacked because basically they put their keys somewhere on a GitHub repo or something like that. Um, and, and someone found it before they could change them. So what generally happens in that situation, um, in my experience is, is the attackers will look into your account and find out where you're not running stuff. And then they'll go and run it there because you're not looking there. You, you've got a blind spot. Um, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be malicious. It can be someone making a mistake or something as well, or just forgetting about things. But, um, as a best practice in a security, as well as cost optimization step, um, I always recommend to, uh, enable policies that prevent people from doing that. Now there's a few similar ones. Regions is a classic. I personally run all my infrastructure in Europe. I don't have any reason to run anything in uh, Australia, even though I'm from there. Uh, no reason to run anything in South America. So I've blocked on all my accounts the ability to do that. Um, there are a few places like US East 1. You don't want to block that if you're using AWS because there's still things always going on there. Um, but that, that's you know just one example. The other thing that, that I think is a really cool idea is um, limiting the possibility of people making mistakes in a dev account. Um, and, and it's genuinely mistake type stuff like accidentally choosing an X1 instead of a T4 instance. Um, you know, an X, X1E costs you sort of millions of dollars a year. Uh, it's got terabytes upon terabytes of gigaflops and everything else. It's, it's an absolutely massive beast. Um, most people don't need that in a dev environment. And if you do, you can make an exception. But, you know, I would go ahead and, and pretty much prevent anybody from spinning up, whether it's a uh, a very large Redshift instance, whether it's a, a 24 extra large EC2 instance or a uh, on the Google side, you know, a high mem 196 uh, N2 or something like that. It's fairly unlikely people need that in test. So putting in some um, intelligent guardrails, and in, in, I sort of like to call them, makes sure that um, a developer doesn't pop a typo into a, a Terraform template or something that spins up hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of cost. Unless others have more, I have one more that I wanted to bring up that was brought up with the group, but we can go on and on. Um, it's Sam, you mentioned a customer was storing two gigabytes of data and paying around 3000 a month for it. Yeah, this is a recent one, actually. Um, so I, I had this customer that they said to me, you know, why, why is our cost of, uh, it was Google Cloud Storage, so same as an S3 bucket, so AWS, Google, same, same here. Um, why is our cost going up on this bucket every month? And uh, as we started looking into it, we realized the amount of data being stored hadn't changed at all in two months. And it was like two gigabytes. It was almost nothing. Um, and as we started diving into it, took a little while, took a, a, going through a few different dashboards, we found out that it was actually the read requests on the bucket. So um, as we started getting getting closer to an answer, one of the engineers at their side went, Oh my God, you know, you sort of had one of those, those realization moments that, that never make you feel particularly good. But like Ian mentioned about pressing enter on the wrong server. Um, he had that realization moment. He said, it's the vault. I said, what? 
they were running uh, HashiCorp Vault on one of their um, uh, cloud buckets, and they were each month they were adding the number of Kubernetes clusters that were querying that Vault, uh, and the cost was going up because the number of containers that were needing to query the Vault was increasing month on month. So they were actually spending something like two thousand dollars a month, three thousand dollars a month by the end, by the time we caught it um, on these requests, and and every single um, every single container within the clusters was calling every time it needed a password for something. It was calling for a fresh copy of the password. Um, now that's not necessarily needed, and there are plenty of ways to mitigate that. The simplest one is in the the client itself. You can say, "Don't request the new one so often," or "Cache it for fifteen minutes or half an hour or something." Um, with a couple of rollouts and a couple of um, so, there's a slight change in the container configurations. Um, but they brought that back down to a very reasonable number, I think down to $100 a month now or something like that. So something much more reasonable. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's a similar situation to what Ian said. It's a bit of a rounding error for that company, but it was a, a curiosity for them, uh, much like I think was mentioned earlier on the call, um, you know, where people um, just see this sort of slowly increasing, like the, the temperature with the, the frog, right? Um, if you put them in a cold kettle. Um, so I think, uh, they, they eventually got to a point where they said, this is, this is really a lot. We're not storing anything here. What's going on? Uh, so it was a nice win to have you. It's actually, so that's a good point. And so a lot of people don't, uh, really, I, I guess they understand a, 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 a frontal lobe kind of level, but they don't understand the impact of it. So it's like things like, uh, a, a common mistake I saw on AWS was they've got some S3 storage stuff, which is yeah, a fantastic place to put it. It's very durable and very uh, accessible. Um, and there was, uh, they, they were doing functions, which essentially were listing the contents of the S3 bucket for what, yeah, that was, that was the nature of their workload. And so they were like, Hey, yeah, we're, 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 we're listing this data. Uh, we're, we're just, it, it's, it's, a, it's a part of the workload. Um, they didn't realize that there's a cost for each of those uh, for, for accessing S3. And so the, the, their actual access, just, just doing that rather useless list function was costing them, as it goes up, it was only a few hundred dollars a day, but that was in that one workload. And then we explored a little further and we realized that this was this was systematic right across the whole business. So there were there was cumulatively thousands of dollars a day just being burned for these excess calls to S3. So their actual storage itself was there and there was a nice flat line. So there was no red flag there, but the red flag was around these extra API calls all the time. So it was like, it, it's, they really build up. Um, and in that instance, they just cached it. And so they, they slashed those costs. They were like a hundred times cheaper just because they just cached the directory and they only just refreshed it whenever they actually felt like it was updated. So they just put some extra intelligence into their application, save themselves a bag of cash, but those API calls can get really expensive, and that's across multiple services as well. It's not just, I've used S3 as the example here, but it's like you know, DynamoDB, et cetera, as well. All, all of these, there's a cost for those API calls, uh, and that cost really adds up quickly. So it becomes a bit of a tax. You know, It's like I always uh, tell people in the cloud that networking costs can be a bit stealthy and can end up being a bit of a tax, but the just calling stuff and just using the services themselves, think about how much that you're, that you're doing, and is there something you can do in the client to kind of buffer that? You, you called out networking costs, one of my bugbears. Um, is it a cost of doing business to have your instances in multiple availability zones and therefore have to pay for data transfer? It's a, it's it's one of those, I remember when I was doing uh, my initial training because I, I, 
uh, I worked at AWS and I was going there, there's, uh, there's the firehose training initially. And so I thought I knew how to design systems beautifully. I didn't really consider the cost because, hey, why would I? I was just designing beautifully. So the question was, how would you design a system? And I was my first contact with a customer. I was like, hey, let's, let's stick it across multiple regions, across 100 different zones. It's like, really make it really super. Yeah, this is going to be super great. Um, I very quickly realized that the cost is actually the, quite often the strongest factor. So, uh, And I know that there are some very, very large customers indeed that uh, are using the cloud and they've got critical workloads all running inside one availability zone. And so, you know, everybody does like uh, screen face uh, emojis and oh my God, but actually it's okay for them because they, that, that particular workload can suffer some downtime. And so if that's, if it's seeing some downtime for that workload, that's going to take say 10, 20 minutes to spin up in a new AZ because it's a pilot light, that's absolutely fine for them. So that's a, that's a risk versus reward kind of moment. So you don't always have to run. Uh, three tier systems across three AZs and then uh, and then pass them across to multiple regions. Sure, it makes it's it's uh, it makes every uh, solutions architect smile and, uh, and and dream of fairies and it's just like hey, this is a fantastic design. Ultimately, you don't need to go crazy with that stuff in the real world. You need to design for your use case and then work backwards from that. You won't be passing an essay pro exam with that answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think. FinOps as a process exists for a reason, right? I think cloud billing in general is is quite complex. You know, I, I've worked with pricing and billing within the cloud for quite a while now, and I don't have all the numbers memorized at all. Um, so I think, you know, while it might be difficult just if you don't look at billing very often to know how the impact of everything will uh, affect your spend immediately just by looking at it, like catching those trends catching those spikes and then maybe looking at the pricing model for services that you use a lot of might be a good place to start um, as an example um ian mentioned and i think maybe Samuel did as well in terms of just um s3 and uh cloud storage the different there's there's so many different pricing models within just those two storage services alone right in terms of you know having lifecycle policies you can get it to a cheaper tier however there's implications for that right if you retrieve it early, you'll have a cost. If you have a lot of um, operations done on those buckets, you'll have a cost. If you're pulling it from a different region, you have a different kind of cost, right? And so depending on how you have that all structured, you can use the same amount of storage to have completely different costs depending on what tier you're using, whether you have it in a single zone, multi-region, multi-zone. Um, and it's it's kind of difficult to just know that all like automatically. So if it's a service that you're using a lot of, I would say it's probably a good idea to Either one, if you have a technical resource you can reach out to, whether it's um, through a partner or through an AWS rep or a GCP rep or their CEs, um, maybe ask them. But secondarily, maybe look at the pricing page and, and get a good idea of kind of exactly how you're you're spending. And I guess one kind of specific one that might be helpful to know, uh, if you use GP, uh, GCP multi-region storage, they made a, a few changes to the pricing model there. And in particular, for multi-region buckets, or for multi-region buckets, if you have um, a lot of uh, like activity that goes on in those buckets, there is a replication charge now for multi-region. There's also an inter-region egress charge. So that charge for multi-region buckets hits you if you have another service speaking to that bucket within GCP at any time. Now, if you have that as a dual-region um, bucket or a single region, and it's it's speaking to that bucket within the same region or one of the dual regions, you avoid that egress charge as an example. But for multi-region, you'll hit it no matter what. So those are like little 
things that you might not think of, but the impact for that can be quite large. I've had a couple of customers where those charges, those two charges alone, their, region, their uh, multi-region egress and replication was more than the storage costs. And so when you see that, it's a good signal to you know, ask your technical resources as well as uh, look at the pricing page to understand exactly what's going on there. Well, we have a lot of road flags that we went over. I think a lot more than I anticipated, to be honest, which is great. Um, we have room for one more. If someone has one last one, they get the comment. If not, we can sign off. I think uh, I think we've dropped a lot of uh, well, you guys, not me. I'm just uh, the jester, but we dropped a lot of wisdom today. Uh, any any last red flag that someone wants to bring up? No, I, I don't have a, a specific red flag, but I, what I would say um, is, I guess, to echo what Andrew said there, right? Um, reading the pricing pages can be really helpful. Um, I, I remember back, I have still have PTSD from when Amazon first enabled automatic lifecycle um, for objects on S3, and uh, customers that were spending 100000 a month suddenly got a million-dollar bill um, because they didn't understand the pricing method and understand that objects would be, um, I think, a minimum size, 128K, and... It, it, it was just one of those situations where not understanding what a product does can cost you an awful lot of money. So the the red flag, I guess, is uh, RTFM. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't done that, then you're going to be in trouble. I I think we decided this is a swearing podcast, but we're just going to bleep with the dolphin noise. Yeah, that's I've uh, I've I've made that the podcast uh, policy. Um, well. That's about it. Thank, thank each and one, every one of you for joining me or joining us today and um, dropping some knowledge. And for those listening, we hope you and we hope you got at least one nugget of wisdom out of this. You know, we discussed things that are some some of them are AWS specific, or we discussed use AWS as the example. But there's always the equivalent service on GCP or an Azure in this case. Um, so we hope you got something out of it uh, and hope to have you as a listener in the next episode. 